0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Our topic today is doing business with China and the impact of its economy on Alberta. Our speaker is Gordon Holden. By the way... Um, China, you may get confused that because China's economy is set to overtake the US all Chinese are going to be living at the same standard as Americans. Now that's not so at all because China is still a poor country. There are a growing number of billionaires but it's still largely a poor country. But there are 1.4 billion Chinese, as Gordon said. The four-year uh, overtaking the U.S., in fact, are the OECD pro- uh, projections, the latest OECD projections. SAGPA wishes to acknowledge the University of Lethbridge for its support. As a non-profit organization. We rely on donations from the public to put on these events. And I have to say that we're doubly grateful to Gordon Holden for his presence today. Not only did he agree to come down and uh, talk to us today, but he's also asked that the gasoline allowance that we would have paid to him um, to get down here be donated by Sagpa to charity. So we're very pleased for that, grateful for that. SAGPA will be donating um, this amount to Gordon Patterson School Choir, who will be here at our December 20th session. Uh, SAGPA encourages you to take out an annual membership. It's only $25, and memberships are available with Lisa, so we encourage you to join. It's how we can put these sessions on. Our thanks go to Country Kitchen Catering for the good lunches they prepare each week, to Shore TV for broadcasting these sessions. And these can be seen on on Shore TV on Sundays at 4.30, and they're rebroadcast again in the evening. Also, we are thankful to CKXU, Radio 88.3 FM. Next week's session is entitled The Challenges of Political Reconciliation. The speaker is Professor Trudy Govier from the University of Lethbridge. Um, I should also say that we do have a condolence card uh, to Francis Schultz her husband passed away recently, and that's outside in the lobby for those of you that wish to sign. So we now come to our audience question and answer period, and I would invite Gordon Holden back to the podium. I must remind you that the audio of this session is being recorded, and if you're friends or you want to listen to it again later, you can get it on the SAGPA website at www sagpa.ca please use the microphone to ask your questions state your name first and keep your questions, your preamble and your questions short thank you,
2: Gordon thank you very much and of course these are my personal views not those necessarily of the University of Alberta Um, okay first question my name is
1: Henning
3: Mundel. Hello, hi, <laughs> hi, uh, Gordon. <clears throat> Thank you for your presentation and the comments you just made. That's exactly what I want to address your personal views. I realize from your presentation and the topic given to you that uh, uh, your stay with foreign service was probably in the economic and trade st- stream. And not political stream, and, and it was uh,
2: actually more political than economic. But the topic I was set oh, okay. today was economic, so but, I stuck to that. It's but true.
3: certainly not uh, citizen immigration. And right. okay, yep. my question relates, though, sort of into re- things reflected in those pie charts near the yep. end about Albertan's perspectives. There we get into sort of what's behind some of the our concerns here about getting into. Well China getting into the Nixon, and perhaps more importantly the foreign investment um, agreement mm-hmm. about um, at least the press has played up quite a bit mm-hmm. about the issues that um, that um, Chinese personnel can come here and can tell our communities and cities where they want to bid and 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 sue us for not giving mm-hmm. equal access mm-hmm. and so on could mm-hmm. you possibly comment a bit about that sure.
2: i can I can ask uh, about that I mean in, in 2011, when we did our survey, we had one question on investment. And I could see already at the beginning of this year that that was a growth area. So we asked four or five or six. You saw all of the investment questions we asked. And next year, I hate picking at a scab, but I'm going to go right back at the question of why are you concerned or why are you in favor of China investment to try and get a better understanding. So I can only speculate. But when talking to Albertans about China, which I do a lot, um, some of the concerns are that uh, Chinese firms won't behave properly here. There have been a couple of examples, um, not just Chinese but other foreign firms. Of course, there's lots of examples of Canadian firms that haven't necessarily followed the letter of the law. And um, just because a country's capital buys a Canadian company or they start their own company here it doesn't mean they escape Canadian scrutiny. And we need to be absolutely vigilant on that to make sure that Potential investors understand when they arrive here, where they operate in Canada, they will follow federal and provincial laws and regulations, and that's something that must be fully understood and must be enforced. And that is the law, and that and that should be enforced. Of course, the opposite applies when you go to China as a Canadian corporation; you follow Chinese law, and that's also and that's also understood. In terms of the free trade agreement, again, maybe a little bit of sense of ownership because I worked on that. Our business people were complaining to us that they were not getting fair treatment from chinese authorities or from the chinese courts court system which is in still in a course of development uh, whenever i've been pessimistic about china i've tended to be wrong and so i'll be optimistic that they'll arrive eventually at a more thorough sense of rule of law and, and fair tri- and fair play but in the meantime we've had lots of outcomes many outcomes not thousands but dozens at least, where Canadian companies weren't fairly traded by Chinese courts. So the key part of this agreement, which is not in the U.S. agreement with China, um, and I'll just emphasize this over 100 com- uh, countries have similar agreements with China. It's not just us. This is the norm. And most of our competitors have that, so their business people have been enjoying protection um, under a foreign investment protection agreement for a long time. This is something brand new for us. Um, and it's true that there are provisions if it... Chinese company feels it's not fairly treated here, that they can also ask for international arbitration. But these arbiters are, are, are pretty savvy people. I've been recommending for large Canadian companies for many years, if you're going to sign a, G, a joint venture agreement in China, for heaven's sake, write in there a provision for international arbitration in Hong Kong or in the United States or Singapore or something like that, and it's a really essential protection. Because what happens is, all this enthusiasm at the beginning of an agreement, and then it tends to go south if it starts to lose money, and then people go to the courts, or they go to their lawyers. And so you want to have that protection written in there just in case. Um, when we signed the NAFTA agreement with the United States, the exaggerated fears was that we we're going to get swamped. Well, the U.S. isn't short of lawyers, right? They've got lots of lawyers, and they're very litigious, more so than in Canada. We would get swamped with cases. And there are provisions in the Article 15, I believe, in the NAFTA agreement that has exactly the same thing, uh, uh, um, uh, arbitration um, in terms of disputes as part of the dispute settlement mechanism. First, you go through negotiation, and then if that fails, you go arbitration. And when I talked last month to our lawyers in DFAT, they said, look, we're not. we got a few cases. Some of them were egregious, as in the case of, of uh, Newfoundland, no where... Basically, a company was expropriated, and we had to pay, the federal government had to pay compensation for that expropriation. Um, and there will be cases like that. I don't think there's going to be a lot. And when I look at the track record of those 100-plus agreements that other countries have with China, their courts are not swamped with Chinese courts behaving in a belligerent or exaggerated fashion. Chinese hate to lose face, and they really don't like to go to, to wash their, their laundry in public they prefer to settle things through negotiation. So I'm actually quietly confident this will be of net benefit to us. We're the ones who have been pushing it for a long time, not the Chinese. We've been the demandeurs. So I, I'm in favor of balance. Of course, wait and see. There is an escape clause. It takes quite a while to get out of it. But if it doesn't work for us, we should push the, the exit button, and then there's a period of time that it takes to get out of it. The reason that it takes quite a bit of time to get out of it, you don't want to have a case where, say, a large Canadian company is expropriated. And then they say we're exiting it, and so it no longer applies to us. So there is a, it takes a while to exit from the agreement. But I'm quietly confident that this will be of benefit to Canadian business community who have been demanding it. I wish I had a dollar for every time I got a letter or a comment from Canadian business and saying, why don't we have a FIPA like everybody else?
4: Okay, thank you. Um, next question. Thank you. Ruth Alzinga. <coughs> thank you, uh, Professor Holden, for your... Uh, presentation, appreciated that, and a special welcome to the guests from Edmonton. Very nice to have you here. Um, I I realize and I believe that Canada has a good relationship with China, and I'm grateful that uh, you have emphasized that China's not to be ignored, and we won't ignore it. Having said that, uh, and I'm not looking for... Um, uh, you may perhaps don't have the answer, and I haven't got an update on Sino Forest. But you have mentioned that um, there are regulatory bodies, and it has been suggested that they play by a different set of rules. And uh, I didn't personally get involved with Sino Forest, but I know folks who have, and I don't know the status of that. But it does bring to mind just how careful one must be or there are um there are different... Uh, there are different rules, right? And the other question, or not question, maybe comment, maybe you, you, you have uh, alluded to this. You have said there are many billionaires in China, and a lot of it is private, privately earned wealth. But there are also some human rights issues, and if that 20-some percent that you mentioned, uh, comparing to other world nations, if they had the kinds of um, amenities, shall we say, for the people—whether it's health or OAS or CPP—those percentages would be up. But instead, we've got a growing number of billionaires in China, and I wonder how how well the the poorer people are doing. So it's a two part question, and uh, I just like your comments. Thank you.
2: Sure. I mean, first of all, the Northern Alberta thing. I'm from Southern Alberta, but I said to my wife when I arrived there, I know about the. Ebon and Calgary rivalry thing. I said, I, We're going to have to cheer for the Oilers no matter what. And, uh, and I do. Well, it's been painful, though. But on the, you've raised some really important questions, each one of which is, is probably worth a lecture. Human rights, absolutely. China's got a long way to go on human rights. They've come a long way. Um, it used to be not available, simple things such as um, choice in clothing, choice of where you, of your job, uh, ability to get a passport and travel abroad. Um, these are all newly acquired freedoms that the Chinese have over the last 30 years, but they've got a long way to go as well. There are issues of corruption, and you put your finger on an important one, uh, which is concentration of wealth. They also know that this is a problem uh, for them. There's something called the Gini coefficient, uh, coefficient that measures levels of inequality, and China is right up there with Brazil and a few other uh, countries that has an enormous um, inequality of wealth. Part of the problem is that they've, the country has developed uh, uneven basis. Um, the coastal regions have leapt ahead and the interior regions are more backward and the rural regions, an average income in a rural area is about one-fifth of what it is in the in the centre. They are putting in place government policies to address that, but the problem is that the people in the cities and on the east coast are pulling further ahead, they're growing faster, they're better educated and they've got very dynamic companies. They're not going to fix that that overnight. On the question of that 20%, you're quite right. The uh, the Chinese need to, they are beginning to accept they need to spend more money on income support levels, on things like unemployment insurance, etc. cetera. Um, they've just, in the last two years, put into place the bare beginnings of what will be a universal health care system. They toyed with the idea of an American style, you buy your insurance thing, and they've rejected that. They've gone with the universal model. But the amount of money, if you're, say, a rural farmer you have access to, is only a couple hundred dollars a year, so it's not adequate. So that number, that percentage should grow. One of the problems they have to confront, too, is they're going to have the Japan problem. We've got it here, of aging population. Um, um, I can't dodge that either. I'm 62, so I'm edging into that, that category where, um, um, which is too high for a really fast-growing economy. Japan has got it in spades because they have no immigration. China's heading for the same result because they had a one-child policy for a very long time. And they've got, right now, they're, they're a very sweet spot where they've got a super high number of Of participation in the labor force, Um, they've got that spot between 18 and let's say 65 or 70. That's where the let's say even 65. That's where the population is concentrated. But if you run ahead 20 years, um, they're going to be in a very difficult situation in terms of, and they're going to have to begin to edge that 20 percent up a lot, a lot more quickly. Quite right.
1: Okay, thank you. Next question, please.
2: Well, I mean, I would eyes wide open. Now, I would invest, not counseling anybody to invest anywhere, but I would invest in a company that's a well-run company that's doing business in China. I wouldn't put money into a Chinese stock exchange or I'd be thinking real hard before putting money into a Chinese company. It's not that there aren't well-run companies, but they don't have the level of governance and the controls on insider trading, et cetera. It's one of the reasons it's a good thing to have them list in Canada, as Sienok will Sina Forest did, it's true, but they got caught, right? Um, I just say caution. I wouldn't put my last dollar, nor did the Chinese. One of the reasons they're investing abroad, they want to have a range of investment opportunities too. Thank you. Next question. Douglas Mitchell. I just want to change from the economic trade aspect of this yep. and take you out of your field and ask you, there's a, some instability in the area, not within China itself, and certainly in Hong Kong, the concerns about Taiwan and now the disputes with the Philippines, and Japan, and I would like you to maybe comment on how you see this playing out, not to mention Tibet. Yeah. Well, uh, if Tibet's an internal problem, but it's a, it's, a, it's a human rights dimension, absolutely. But they have problems um, with a I don't like, blow my own horn, but with a, a co-worker, I published a book in August on the South China Sea issue and the Arctic Ocean. We picked two areas, one of great sensitivity for the Chinese, one for us, and they have not done a great job, in my view, of managing that, that issue. They are a rising power, and that and that is potentially complicated. The, I don't want to use this analogy. I hope it isn't true. But the, in the 19th century, you had a rising power, Germany, which was challenging an established power, Great Britain, and they, it ended very badly. Now you have a rising power, China, just it's a long way away from the United States, but beginning to to challenge them. Two things that give me hope. Number one is that the economies are very much intertwined. Um, You couldn't run the U.S. economy without the China economy right now because there's so much inputs that are are needed. You can almost walk on the ships that go back and forth between the two. Uh, Although I had a – I won't name him, but I had a very senior U.S. administration official tell me once. He said, Gordon, a war between uh, China and the United States would ruin the 21st century. I don't think that's far off. You've got two nuclear powers, both very large. Um, God forbid it would ever come to that, and I don't think it will come to that, but that would be the worst possible outcome for the global, not just the global economy, but for the world and for Canada as well. Not likely, but um, I don't want to create the impression that I'm looking through rose-colored glasses. There are downsides, and particularly if you live in China's neighborhood, some of those neighbors are getting very nervous.
1: Okay, next question, please.
0: Um, thanks Gordon for your presentation my name is Tom Kane um, someone said recently that a dead planet makes so-called healthy economy useless like why would we live on a dead planet we're gradually getting close to that I take a little exception to you joking about co2 and that you need a co2 fix but I so I don't think you took in your talk the environment very carefully so my question is is it true that the Foreign Investment Promotion and Protection Agreement has two aspects that are troublesome to critics. Uh, that it would damage Canada's sovereignty and lock us into an unfair deal that would allow Chinese companies to seek damages for laws designed to protect Canadians' health, environment, and more. So, is that true that that's in the agreement? Um, that it would deal with China, that would set up secret courts where Chinese companies can sue Canada if we pass laws to protect our health and environment. So. Both of those concerns are are there, and and if those are true, do you think that a court challenge from Canadian citizens would help stop that or amend the uh, faulty FIPA?
2: Sure. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to tackle those. They're big issues, quite frankly, that take a long time, more time than I've got to reply. On the environmental side, the Chinese have not taken good care of their land and their water. There's no doubt about it. Now, Part of that is 5,000 years of occupation by hundreds of millions of people um, once upon a time, there were, it's hard to believe there were elephants and rhinoceros in Beijing in the northern part of China. That's when China was f- covered with forests. Um, I suppose once upon a time there were millions of buffalo which roamed the prairies as well. So we're not without, without blame as well. I was in Yunnan Province, right down the Burmese border, last month. Actually, earlier this month, and I saw footprints of where elephants had passed. But they only exist in tiny marginal areas. Basically. Uh, China has mined the water in North China Plain. The water table when I first lived there was six meters below the surface. Now it's 60 meters below the surface. And you could go on and on. Uh, They've got big pollution issues. One thing that gives me hope is young Chinese are beginning to challenge this. You begin to see the beginnings of an environmental movement. Now shift over to FIPA. I think there's a bit of a fear campaign going on here. And... As an Albertan, but who spent my life as a diplomat, every time you sign an international agreement of any kind, you sign the UN Charter, you sign a bilateral investment agreement with any country, you you sign NAFTA, you give up a little bit of sovereignty, but so does your partner. It is just the nature of international relations that when you sign binding international treaties on human rights or whatever, you bind yourself to terms of that. There's almost always an escape clause, which there is in this agreement, But you're saying, for the duration of this agreement, while we're still both parties, here are the things I'll do. So yes, it's an impingement on sovereignty, but it's one which Canada deliberately undertakes, and so does China. I actually think that the terms of the agreement will turn out to be more favorable for us because I think the problems of the Chinese court system are far greater than for our own. Just a point of reassurance, though. If a Chinese company chooses to appeal unfair treatment of them here in Canada. They have to prove that they are being singled out for ill treatment. If they're getting the same treatment as any other foreign company or as any other Canadian company, they have no basis. They have to find a law or restrictions which is just at them. In the meantime, they have to obey the terms of all of the federal and provincial law regarding to the environment and to um, human rights regulations and in terms of labor agreements, and they can be fined and dealt with otherwise if they don't. So to me, it's, yes, there is a restriction on Canadian sovereignty, as with any other agreement, but just like with NAFTA, where we undertook to do certain things. I recall, and I'm old enough to remember, when NAFTA had not yet come into force, I believe, and I think the majority of the opinion is that NAFTA has been a huge boon to the Canadian economy, you can look very carefully. Yes, there were a few businesses that went out of business after NAFTA was signed, but if you look at the growth of our exports and Canadian prosperity, NAFTA's been a great boon. I think China can be as well.
1: Okay, next question, please. Please keep your questions short. The name is Corey
3: Ray. My question is uh, about currencies. In your uh, presentation, you said 20% of the economy in China was uh, controlled or partly controlled by the government. The currency is totally controlled by the government. They have an artificial currency there. I just want to know your, what the impact is on the artificially held low currency uh, for Canadian exports. Thank you.
2: Sure. And this is a big question. It was a, a question in the um, election campaign, and cabinet Romney said that he would declare China a currency violator on the day that he took office. Well. Set currency rates are not something brand new. We've had, for a very long part of, of Canadian history, we had fixed currency rates as well. So it's not unique to, uh, to China by any means. Hong Kong still has one as well. And it's judged by the um, Heritage Foundation as the openest economy on earth, the Hong Kong economy. And their dollar has been fixed for as long as I know, at least going back to the 80s, at a set amount. And they deal with those consequences. Uh, over the last five years, the value of the Chinese, economy has ridden, the Chinese currency has, has risen by about 20% vis-à-vis the U.S. dollar. Economist I respect, a guy called Yukong Huang, who is the World Bank representative, and he's an American uh, in China. I listened to his lecture in Beijing a few weeks ago, and his argument is that the currency, if it's, over, if it's undervalued, it's by a very small amount, and he thinks it may actually be, if freed today, there's no guarantee it would float, it would float up, or at least not by a significant amount. Um, I'd like to see greater flexibility in the Chinese economy. I think it actually would be good for China itself. Um, and that's, that's one of the issues that um, um, I wish China would pay more attention to. But the solution to that is not by ignoring China. Again, it's by engaging them. Uh, Mark Carney, uh, our departing, I guess, the head of the Bank of, of, of Canada, um, put huge emphasis on the Chinese economy, sent for the first time a financial counselor there, spent a lot of time visiting China and promoting the idea that we need to pay a lot closer attention to the Chinese economy than we do currently. He Also, his advice was sought by the Chinese because of his success in managing the recession here in Canada. On the point of currency, and I'm not a financial economist, uh, my own view is that though their, their, their yuan is, or their renminbi, whatever you choose to call it, is undervalued, but not by nearly as much as we think. And if you think that floating it will solve all the West problems, I don't think that's the case either. They've got, even if it were to float up by another 20%, um, they have... Um, wage advantages which go far beyond that. They're diminishing as the cost of their production and the cost of their labor increases. So I think they do have a somewhat inefficient they have a, a, some, a currency mechanism. They take some advantage from that. Um, but they also pay a price for that as well. It's very hard for them, for example, to uh, uh, control their inflation or to have a full monetary policy when it's fixed. Their monetary policy, to some extent, is settled by Washington because they've fixed their yuan to the U.S. dollar. Uh, I think there'd be advantages in terms of their own sovereignty if they were able to contain or to float the yuan and allow it to, or at least control its method, other than by, by being fixed. It's a complicated issue. I won't. I have an opinion, but it's one one man's opinion.
1: And I'm going to move on to the next question. We've got two questioners at the microphone. We can cover them both if you make your question short, please. Thank you. My name is Tad Mitri. My question is about Canada. Canada's attitude. When Mr. Harper created the Bureau of Religious Freedom in DFAT, what is he going to do vis a vis Chinese religious situation, the Falun Gong,
2: Catholic Patriarch Church, vis a vis Vatican, Tibet? Thank you. Sure. And just before answering your question, those people who ask tough questions about currency, and about environment, etc., I don't want to create the impression that glibly somehow I have the answer, the correct answer to all of those questions. China is so complex, reasonable people can come to quite different conclusions on that, and I respect your views. On the question of religious freedom, again, I would note over the past 30 years in particular, there's been a huge increase in religious freedom in China. There's tens of millions of, of people who attend churches, both open churches, which are officially recognized by the Chinese government, and something called underground churches, which are less open, tolerated sometimes, sometimes cracked down upon. Um, I'd like to see more freedom. The Catholic Church in particular has problem with the fact that the bishops which they appoint are not recognized by China and, and uh, aren't allowed to function as bishops of the Catholic Church. The Protestant religion, a lot of these underground churches operate under difficult circumstances that should be changed. In my opinion, it will be better when it changes. I'd only argue for a certain measure of patience because that 1.4 billion people live in far greater freedom than they have at any time in my lifetime. And that progress has been pretty steady over the course of the last 30 years. Um, We'll see lots of collisions between the people and the state as they, young people in particular. Um, I spend a lot of time on college campuses in China now and they're a very different sort of Person. They have no recollection of the Cultural Revolution. They have no recollection often of the extreme hardships that China went through. They're very ambitious. They, they're eager to know about what's happening in the West. We've got 3,000 of them on the campus in Alberta. They take their, their ideas, they get here back home, um, and they find ways around the controls of the Internet, et cetera. So I guess. My op- I'm an optimist by nature and partly by what I've seen in China. So I just sort of keep watching that space. There'll be lots of bumps and twists in the road. But I think that road has actually been a fairly positive one, especially in the last three decades.
1: Okay, so. thank you. Next question.
2: Last question. Thanks, Gordon, for coming down and donating your travel expenses. Uh, I'm going to let you off real easy with a question about the Northern Gateway. Uh, do you think it'll go through and... If it doesn't, what will happen to this whole yeah. thing that we're really talking about? Yeah. Boy, that it,
1: was Knut Peterson.
2: You hit a sore point for me, and the people in this audience will probably know more about that issue. Keep in mind, i spent most of my adult life outside of this country. In fact, at one point, I rec- did a calculation. I'd spent more of my adult life in communist countries than I had in free countries. Born free, but it, somehow my job had spent... Uh, a lot of time in other places and so I can't claim to be an expert on our domestic affairs I'm pessimistic about the Northern Gateway and I'm not too happy about our neighboring province because here's my take in in the 19th century BC petitioned to join our confederation but on one condition that they would be granted land access that the government of Alberta the government of Canada Alberta didn't exist then of course and the taxpayers of Canada would fund a railway which would link them to the central markets so to me it's a Uh, Aberration to have a province say we're not going to allow your products pass through. To say we'll let them pass through, but we we want to be reassured you're going to do so safely. I have no trouble with that. There's only two parts of our confederation that are landlocked: Alberta and Saskatchewan. Every other piece, north, every other province, got a maritime exit. We don't, and so for us, it's not a small thing. It it's a huge thing, and so I'm very disappointed by the attitude of Governor BC and to some extent of chunk of the people of B.C. I've got two kids, who've, two of my tribe of five kids who've migrated there, and I can't convince them to come back to my home province, but uh, um, I worry they're going to begin to have the same attitude. I think it's a big mistake on their part. Uh, I, I'm, I don't think it's going to get built in a, in a timely manner. Um, I think we're going to have to look to alternatives, more oil going south, more oil going east to the central Canada. It's a bit ironic that we'd run our pipelines through probably five times the distance with five times the risk of a pipeline failure. Because we can't run it west, um, but uh, we would be in a lake of oil if we try and maintain our prosperity here in this province, consuming just what we consuming what we produce, and we're we're selling it as you know at a huge discount, which is costing some thirty forty billion dollars a year of lost revenue to this country uh, by only having the U.S. as a market. We've got to find a way to get world price oil, and that means getting it to a coastline. So I'm I'm pessimistic in the 10-year framework and the fullness of time, maybe in 20 years, et cetera. But $30 billion to $40 billion a year times 10, that's 30 to 300 to $400 billion of lost revenue if we can't find other exits. So uh, maybe the differential won't always be that large, but it's a huge loss of, of wealth for this province, selling our oil cheap, and that bothers me.
1: Okay, thanks very much. Please join me in thanking Gordon coming here in his presentation. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you all next week.